Today is March 12, 2018, and you're listening to Human Factors Cast, episode 81. Today on the show, we're talking about inclusively designed racing video games, proliferation of fake news, and talking about Musk's new boring plan, and more. Human Factors Cast starts right now. Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Well, listeners of the show didn't hear the four false starts that Blake and I just had, but welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today by my good friend and yours, Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. It's just so everybody knows, I had I was crying because Nick was... <laughs> Killing me laughing for false starts, but it was amazing. And I had I had a giggle fit. And I think I think going forward in the future, uh, we may do some live streams of the show, uh, so that way some of our listeners can tune in to some of this madness that happens before and after the show. Uh, but anyway, Blake, what's going on with you, man? It's been a whole week. We're here again. We're talking it human factors. It has been a whole week. This daylight savings time always kills me, so I'm a little out of it today. But today, I, uh, I actually reviewed a couple people's resumes on Twitter, and I was going to open it up and say, I really love doing that. I was kind of surprised that a lot of people will look for feedback or whatever on just trying to get help through Twitter, and I was more than happy to help, so it was a lot of fun today. Uh, but other than that, Nick, I this is kind of an interesting topic for you, and I, f- I feel like this is something you and I could go on and on about. But I was oh, talking yeah, to good. my boss at the nonprofit I work at, and she was telling me that uh, we're, we're looking to make a whole bunch of events centered around VR over the next six months. And one of them is talking about VR and how it can facilitate cross, cross-functional team interaction for remote teams. Because a lot, of, I don't know how many, how often any of the listeners or yourself, Nick, has worked on like a remote team, but it's it can be difficult when you're not in the same space, trying to like do activities like card sorting or design reviews. You just you're kind of missing some of the emotional cues and things like that. I mean, you and I even are started doing video just to get right. the visual cues from each other. Um, so that was a cool conversation. I'm I'm kind of wondering how that would turn out over time or if augmented reality might be a better option. Well, let me poke your brain about this, Blake, because I, on the show even, I talked about this uh, Rec Room game a couple weeks back and the physicality of being in the same space as other people and being able to interact with some of the elements in a space like that uh, really has this unique feel to it, right? So imagine you're in a virtual space, like you're you're talking about cross-functional remote teams here right so imagine imagine you have these vr controllers and you can actually walk up to a whiteboard and actually draw something on the whiteboard right a mock-up or a a low fidelity uh mock-up of something on the whiteboard and then somebody else can come in that same space and walk up to the whiteboard and either erase what you just wrote or you know add on to it and you can annotate it with your own notes and then um you know that's just the beginning think about the potential application of artificial intelligence overlaying that and translating it into an actual interface on the fly as you're drawing it, right? So there are a lot of cool, really exciting avenues that you can go down uh, with cross-functional VR teams. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a definite possibility for the future. And actually, my, my boss brought up a really good point that a lot of people have you know, multiple cameras in the house, whether they're using them just for stuff like this, like doing telecons or even like kind of nanny type cams and even using kind of much 
further in the future, but having AI kind of process your environment and throw that into the virtual experience could allow people to feel like they're in the same space as you. Like, let's say you had a whiteboard that you were interacting with, like you were just talking about, and it can almost feel like you're both there in the same room. Yeah. Yeah. And like, like I was saying a, a couple of weeks ago with that rec room, it's so, it was so visceral. It was the strangest thing to be in that space with other people. Right. And just sort of, um, having that, the physicality, I don't, I don't know even how to describe it. Like, it, it just being there and trying to accomplish the same goal in a virtual space, it's it's something that you can't capture into words, right? It's something about being there. You had to be there, Blake. Yeah, it's kind of like the uh, the overall problem of telecommunication, right? Like trying to really feel like somebody's there, but it sounds like VR lets you get a little bit more of that physicality in the space with somebody, especially since you're interacting in similar ways and stuff like that. So it's a it's an awesome concept and. I love I love the idea of doing events centered around it. Yeah, so as long as we're talking about sort of this immersion or, or, or virtual environments, um, I had an experience, uh, I guess it was Friday night. We went to L.A. for a screening of um, this movie, Strangers Pray at Night. It's a, it's a campy horror film um, that it, the movie was whatever, but the experience that we went to, was sort of like this pop-up haunted house type of thing where um, it, it's almost kind of like half escape room, half haunted house type deal. And I, I, it really got me thinking about like, so when I go to these things, I like haunted houses or, or whatever, I'm always very um, disconnected from what's going on. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, laughing at, the bad acting that's happening in front of me. And I'm, you know, like, Oh my God, they're coming. They're going to kill us. And then like, this one was a little bit more intense because we had to, you know, sign a waiver that said they could, uh, manhandle us and actually touch us and, and, um, move us around and stuff. And, and that we'd be filmed for the promotional event, whatever. So there, there was all this extra stuff to it. And I was like, okay, well maybe, maybe this will finally make it feel real. Right. And I was, I was reflecting like what makes something feel real, right? I don't know if listeners of our show have watched Westworld. I know you've dabbled in it maybe. Have you seen it? Westworld? No, I haven't seen Westworld. That's uh that's on the bucket list for sure. It's on the list. So Westworld, the concept behind Westworld is that you go to this world that is set in the wild wild west and you can be anyone you want to be. And it's it's like this heavy role playing thing. And I always like, and this happens to me with stuff at like Disneyland too, right? Let's say I want to uh, be in a Star Wars thing or the Star Wars VR experience I even had, right? The entire time I'm like, I know this isn't real. What, you know, what would it take for me to finally like get over that barrier and say, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to role play. This is going to be it. Like, I'm going to be in this environment, you know, and even even a physical environment where things were more real. They were like they were literally grabbing me and putting a knife up to my throat and, you know, doing this this stuff in this in this thing. Um, obviously, it was completely safe and, and no one would get hurt. But it just got me thinking, like, what would it take to actually make it real for somebody? Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting because. 
from what you just talked about, the only time that I've really felt super immersed in things like a haunted house or a haunted type experience was when I did have to sign those kind of waivers where they could interact with you, like be a little, little more than just like touching you and right. kind of be like jerking you around or come at you really fast out of nowhere. So sometimes I think that the danger aspect in those situations, like coupled with the unexpected portion of it helps me to feel like it is more real. But at the end of the day, it's, it's what, like what you're saying, like, even if somebody's putting a knife to my throat in that situation, you know, it's not going to end in any kind of real danger. Uh, but I don't know, as far as like the star Wars one, I think I I don't even know how you would get around that. Cause it's one of those where for, for my, from my own personal perspective, like I'd be really excited to be there, but it would never be able to get to the point where I feel like it's true immersion because it would always be fantasy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, look at this even like, so while we were in LA, this all ties together. I love this. While we were in LA, uh, that pop-up star Wars cantina, um, you've heard of this, right? It's it's basically they they've redone a bar to be like the Moss Eisley Cantina, down from the the pipes hanging from the wall to the decor uh, to the tables to the blue milk to everything, right? Wow, um, cool. And when it first came out, it had like a forty dollar cover charge, right? So you could just go in, and they had like people in costume walking around and stuff. Uh, but we went in the other day. There was no cover because it's it's uh, just become a permanent fixture in L.A. and um, you know that that came close for me. Like I I adopted a smuggler persona, which I don't do, right? Like I just don't do it, and that that almost did it for me, right? You know, it's like I got to make a deal with Jabba, you know, and I, you know I was there, and I took off my glasses, and I made my smuggler hair, and I took a picture. I should post that on our Slack. I'll do that you later. You should. That's awesome. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I like that one came close for me, but it still wasn't like it. Just what does it take to make an environment? feel real and it, it, it's been bothering me all weekend and i'm hoping that we can break that down a little bit more and like finally come to what it is right because that sense of presence is so it's not even presence right because you can feel like you're present in a in a fake environment but then it just doesn't it, it, like the presence is one thing but then you have the um sort of how how does it feel like uh, it just yeah, it's interesting what you're saying because it's because we talk we'll talk about it a little bit in the show, right? Like the the haptics part is something that has been like kind of missing and trying to be figured out. We'll talk about a story that really dives into how people are solving that problem. But even still, it, what you're describing or what I'm interpreting it as is it's really more of this: how do you convince the brain that it's real? Yeah, or how do you get yourself into that mental state that allows you just to fall into the immersion and i have no idea because it would almost be like you would have to to live in it you would yeah and and i think uh so in westworld no spoilers here uh if you're if you haven't caught up or whatever in westworld you know a lot of people live there for days at a time and that's when it starts to become more real for them um they go on vacation there right and so by the end of the fifth or sixth day you know you're starting to um you're starting to understand how the world works. And I think that some of these experiences are just so short that they don't allow that time to establish. So this, this Star Wars, there's a um, there's a hotel that's coming to Disney World, I think, in, in 2020 that's supposed to be an all-inclusive experience that is supposed to kind of be like the Westworld equivalent where you have aliens walking around and you go from the hotel into Galaxy's Edge, which is the theme park uh, or the Disney uh, Star Wars land if you will. 
Mm-hmm. And you're going to go from one to the other and you have these missions throughout the day and it's going to be super immersive in that regard. But I wonder how that's going to, I doubt that that will even accomplish the same thing because it's uh, it's going to be in a familiar theme park area, right? You've been to this, but, but it's going to be different because you have missions. I don't know, man. Like I just, I, I want to experience something that's otherworldly, that's not of our world is that weird like i don't know that's like the ultimate goal for me well honestly what you're describing with that kind of really not like outside of vr exclusivity is probably as close as we can really get right because that's almost trying almost really living in a different world trying to accomplish different goals um for an extended period of, of time whether that's like a couple days or like a week uh, but i don't know man it's a uh, I always wonder where all the all of this technology is going to go and how it's going to integrate into our lives because I know it has the the potential really to change how we just experience life in general. But I just I don't know where it goes from here to make that immersive that just immersiveness feel human. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I don't know. I guess there's people like me hard at work on on trying to figure that that equation out. Right. Uh, for yeah. me, that's the ultimate pipe dream is is to sort of this escapism video games come close a lot of times you know like I, I i've come close in video games where i feel like i can um embody this avatar and and you know take on this journey but it's never been like i i've never felt like my personal personal body virtual avatar or uh or otherwise you know as long as i inhabit that body um I don't feel like I've ever gotten to that point. And, and it's, yeah, it's, I, I'm amazed that we've gone this deep. I mean, we're 15 minutes into the podcast already and we're, we're still talking about this topic. It's really rich. And I'd be curious to see what some of our Slack listeners think of it. You see what I did there, Blake? I'm trying to transition into our, like our, our Slack community. Um, so, so we'll leave that for now. Uh, I, I wanted to jump into a couple things. Um, so Blake, later on this month, you're going to be going to the Human Factors Healthcare Symposium, yeah? Yes, I am. So 26th through the 28th of March, I'll be hanging out at the Healthcare Symposium in Boston. And we here at Human Factors Cast, uh, Blake's going to be our field correspondent for that one. And uh, we're going to try to break this thing down. Um, we're, we're hoping to do a couple bonus episodes. We're hoping for every day. Uh, if not, don't don't hate us. But we'll, we'll, we will give you at least one bonus episode with uh, Blake's on-the-ground uh, assessment of what's going on and, and the stuff he's seen. Um, Most definitely. In addition to that, we have our field correspondent and guest of the show, Woodrow. He's going to be at the uh, CHI CHI conference in Montreal, Canada this year. Uh, so, and that's from April 23rd to 26th. So, if you guys are listening and you can't attend these events, I strongly encourage you to jump in our Slack. Let us know what you want to see at these things, and um, you know our field correspondents will do the best they can to get into these and report back. And and you know, we have this philosophy here on the show of no human factors practitioner left behind, where we kind of want to bring this information to the masses um, and, you know, let everybody kind of experience what it's like to go to these conferences by having these uh, on the floor uh, details of what's going on. Most definitely. Yeah. And if please, if you guys know anything for the healthcare symposium that's coming up that you would like to know more about, or if you want me to see if I can. If I can find out more information, 
let us know in Slack because I would love to cover things that you actually want to hear about it, especially if you're not able to go. Yeah, and one more plug here. This is from actually one of our Slack listeners and Patreon subscribers. Thank you, Mateo. Uh, this is uh, HFES Australia 2018 is coming to Perth. So that's uh, November 26th through 28th, 2018. And um, if you have any additional, if you need any additional information, you can join our Slack and ask Mateo directly there. Um, I know it's a little early to start thinking about that. And then HFES, I think, is in October this year. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, we're hoping to get some coverage from these events and and uh, get them out to you. But what do you say, Blake, that we jump into Human Factors News? Let's do it. All right. This is the part of the show all about Human Factors News. This is where we break down everything related to the field of Human Factors. This could be anything from medical, transportation, psychology, whatever it is. You know, you know the drill. If you're new here, we're talking about that stuff. As long as it relates to the field of Human Factors. Blake, what do we got up first this week? So up first this week, we've got what is going on in the state of aviation. So the United States has definitely the safest aviation system in the world, and we can never really take this for granted, though. It, this was this, and it comes at a pretty severe cost in the past. With our last crash happening nine years ago, being full of fatalities. But what we've learned through pain points is a lot of safety lessons of aviation, and it has taken combined efforts of the government, the labor, and industry to get us where we are today. So it's going to take a, all of us working together to remain and keep that gold standard and that high high safety priority. And the FAA was created to help be that safety regulator and agency that it must be to help us focus on different oversights and regulatory missions. So this is critical to integrate new technologies and users into the national aerospace system, including drones and other commercial air, commercial space transportation. And as we continue to improve safety for some, for some users, such as helicopters and general aviation, it'll be even more important. So Nick, this, this kind of state of the aviation address was a big, uh, especially just a big hearing about what's going on in aviation from commercial aviation safety to what's going on in general aviation. So kind of just regular pilots as well as helicopter safety and what is going on with drones. So it's a, it's a big, big thing, especially in the United States because they take it very, very seriously in terms of the safety. And as we've talked about, in the past, like drones are a heavy hitting concept here. Yeah, for sure. So one thing to note, uh, we do post some Slack exclusive stories. Uh, this is one of them. So check our, our Slack for, uh, oh, and I should probably say where the Slack is. Link is in the description, um, on our Twitter, on our website. It's, it's wherever you can find us. And, uh, if you can't find it, just email us. We can send it directly. Cause I know some people had trouble accessing the link from our description. So yeah, but this is, uh, this is one of the Slack exclusives, if you will. And, uh, this, this breaks down a lot of the critical issues and, um, kind of the state, like you said, Blake, of, uh, aviation. And I, I think, uh, do we want to just go through these points one by one and kind of hit the major beats and then, um, and then talk about it? Sure. Yeah, we can hit the major thing. So in commercial aviation safety, this, this is something I didn't expect because I have a little bit of experience in the back in the research background of commercial aviation. And typically you're thinking about, okay, what's number one priority? Let's get passengers from A to B safely, right? Well, the, the biggest hazard apparently in the past nine years since the last fatal crash in the United States is really to do with runway safety. So making sure that aircraft are actually using the correct runways or are leaving and taking off from the runways they've been assigned. Uh, so that's, that's a really interesting 
problem to try and deal with because when i think of aviation safety i'm always thinking of what's going on in the nas or how how are air traffic controllers dealing with managing aircraft through things like next gen or basically ui tools whereas when we're talking about runway safety there's a little more going on there because you got you've got different systems that are having to work together from ground to atc to pilot excuse me to pilot and to other other pilots i guess right yeah no that's I, I'm like completely naive when it comes to uh, aviation stuff. And so this is really sort of enlightening for me to kind of see, you know, th- th- wow, like the, the, the runway safety thing, I would never have even thought, you know, that, that, I, I mean, I know runways, like it makes sense, right? When you, when you see it, but then to actually think about it, it's like the, the equivalent I can think of is when you sort of look at um, maybe, the other transportation, like ground transportation, uh, where, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think of, of sign size or line size even, or, or distance between lines or just any of these little tiny factors or legibility of font on the road. Like it's all these little things that if you're not in the field and, and totally immersed with, you don't know. And, uh, the, the, the runway thing is one of those for me. It's, it was, it was kind of interesting to hear about that. Yeah. And just like a little, extra piece or of this is they i remember a friend in grad school was working on what they call the electronic flight bag and basically a lot of these runways are plates which are just pieces of paper that have these very complex drawings of what these runways look like how you can land in and out of them when they're to be used based on weather conditions and what's going on in the air but these used to always be paper now let's think about your road analogy you just gave. I mean, the the benefit of something like Google Maps or even Apple Maps is if a road closure happens, it's got enough data to communicate like and change the map and let you know what's going on versus maybe a runway. If a runway is closed, if it happens so quickly, they're unable to notify enough people and get it out to the ATC like, hey, that something's going on. They've got to communicate to pilots. You just have a lot of room for error because we're talking about something that's only paper-based. Whereas if you think about it like electronic flight version, might have an option or the ability to kind of update information a little faster and push those updates out. Yeah, for sure. Um, Want to get into general aviation here? Yeah, this one blew me away. So... Uh, as safe as commercial aircraft travel is, it seems like the general aviation community has a lot, a lot that needs to be made up. So it's what, what are the, there's like some ridiculous crash or some actually fatal accidents over the past, over the fiscal year of 2016, where it's still over around like 250 fatal accidents and over 350 total lost lives in uh, just regular general aviation. And that that kind of surprised me because one, it's it's much smaller aircraft, which of course like is contributing to the scale. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, I know you have to go through just as much rigorous training as being a general aviation pilot. So there, there's not there wasn't a whole lot said about what is being done in this realm, which I kind of found a little disconcerting. Um, but it's it's still relatively safe, but that seems like a pretty significantly high rate of rate of accidents for I, commercial aircraft i agree but i mean if you think like it, it's always it's that statistic right when you think about how many flights there are and how many um different planes are in the sky at any given time and the fact that there's only what was it 250 um like I, I, that's a pretty good number considering how many like ground transportation accidents there are annually 
not saying it's perfect, right? And and I don't think any system ever could be. There's always that assumed risk when you step on an airplane that it could fall out of the sky. But, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's pretty good odds. Pretty good odds. That's all I'm saying. But um, it's still... It is declining. I mean, that's that's a significant yeah. decline, as they say, this over the past, like, one year. So that's that's pretty great. It's It still sucks that we're having this problem. But, you know, and the fact that they don't have anything to say about it, you're right, is very concerning to me. <laughs> I mean... Uh, but uh, I just think as these systems and technologies get better and better, I think um, error will become less of a problem. So yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Uh, helicopter safety. So this is always <laughs> super intense to me because helicopters blow me away with how they work mechanically and the fact that x no every x number of miles you have to break them completely apart and then put them back together. Um, but surprisingly enough. Know. Helicopter crashes are not very frequent, but when they do happen, the the part that is that actually ends up hurting people in the end is not the crash itself. Most of the time, occupants can survive. It's more so what happens afterwards, and that's usually some kind of post-fire that happens from the crash. And I'm wondering, like, is there any kind of real thing that's being worked on to try and deal with that, or if like different, I don't know, different technologies can be put into place to help helicopters still have you know the speed that they need without using as much fuel i don't know it just it kind of was strange that one in a helicopter crash most people are surviving and it's mostly due to if a fire breaks out that's where we have problems yeah i mean call it complete ignorance on my part but like i i if 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 i didn't read this um i I would have been like okay the propeller goes out there's no way someone can like survive a crash right but apparently you know, most of these aren't propeller related, but or most uh, most accidents or um, or injuries rather. That's what I'm looking for. Most injuries aren't propeller related or or even crash related. But you're saying that they're fire related, and yeah, that seems. I, I, the good thing is that they've identified it right in in this uh, in this state of aviation address. They've actually identified that this is the cause of most injuries, and and uh, isolating the cause is half the battle. I need a G. Yeah, I mean that's G. probably from. Soundbite. Like you like human factors practitioners just, you know, doing critical incident technique reports of what happens afterwards. And so that's a, another grand entry to our field in aviation for helicopter safety. Yeah, for sure. Last but not least, drone safety. Oh, goodness. <laughs> so, oh, okay, Nick, we talked last week about a, a bunch of drone issues, or not last week, maybe two weeks ago, but we had some I issues remember. with DJI. But this particular one, I did not know even happened, and I'm just going to run through it real quick. So uh, on September 21st of 2017, so about a year ago, when a small drone collided with a U.S. Army Black Hawk, Black Hawk over New York Harbor, it damaged the helicopter's rotor and forced an emergency landing. That I didn't even know that to be to be completely honest that drones would be able to get that high. And I had this conversation with a good friend of mine over the weekend about the differences between you know uh, sp- higher classes of airspace. So where you're, where you're talking about like much bigger drones, kind of like an Icona, versus you know the little DJI drones that operate in lower airspace. And so there's there's not a whole lot of specifics in this particular address about which class of airspace it was in. But for a drone to cause that much havoc is it's just kind of disconcerting especially with as much research and work as goes into trying to put regulations together for drones yeah and the thing that sort of um surprises me too is that it was able to collide with a u.s army uh vehicle as well uh, aircraft 
um, that is probably named by some juvenile, but uh, because when phonetically when you say anyway, uh, <laughs> you can say it again, Blake. It's it's Blackhawk. <laughs> so anyway, all right, the, we're mature here on Human Factors Cast, and yeah, but no, I mean the fact that it can get to a military vehicle, and um, you know they didn't even see it coming, and the fact that. Uh, you know, I, I guess I can see it over New York Harbor. That doesn't surprise me because that that could be a very scenic thing that you'd want to capture with a drone. But um, but you're right. This whole issue of airspace uh, needs to be more clearly defined. And I think, at least here in the United States, we're we're uh, we're working towards that. Right? We sort of we have these spaces defined, and and you know we're we're starting to define more uh, restricted airspaces around airports and air facilities. Um, but yeah, it'll, it'll be, uh, I, I, I'm surprised that this happened. I think, did they just declassify this in this, uh, state of the aviation thing? I don't know. I'm assuming they must have, because I've, I hadn't read that anywhere. And I actually, when I first glanced over this little synopsis, I asked one of my friends about it and he was, he was surprised that he had even not heard about it himself. Now it is a smaller drone. It's, it does say in the little synopsis so that's kind of not his area of expertise but yeah i can't imagine where it came from but i think you are right nick especially something in like new york harbor where you might expect drones to be flying around or even take it take like any place in san diego that's close enough to a military base uh like maybe pendleton or anything like that where helicopters are doing touch and goes and stuff like that that are low enough for these kind of small drones to get to so it's it's, I think a lot of it's going to have to do with the D- DJI thing we tackled uh, like two weeks ago with the, the tagging of how do you trace a drone back to a user and then what are the consequences and what are the rules based on that. Yeah, and I, I got to say, you know, we have a pretty sharp staff here at Human Factors Cast and, and not none of our researchers caught this event and it, this happened just a couple months ago. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if this was declassified. Um but yeah, uh, sharp staff here at Human Factors. Yes, that self plug. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. You ready for the next one, Mister Nick? Yeah, let's do it. Let's jump in. All right. So, a PhD candidate in computer science at Columbia Engineering, Mister Brian A. Smith, created a new system for blind gamers who want to get a little racing in. So, the system is called the Racing Auditory Display, or RAD, and it is truly amazing. It lets the visual the visually impaired play racing games without seeing the screen and instead the audio output tells the player when they're getting closer to an edge and can even enable them to cut corners and make tight turns the rad is the first system to make it possible for pl- for people who are blind to play a real 3d racing game with full 3d graphics realistic vehicle physics complex racetracks and a standard playstation 4 controller so I cannot even imagine coming up with this system or what it would be like to, for the first time ever, be able to kind of compete with other sighted players playing video games. So this is just a, an interesting concept and a really cool application of uh, using, I guess, 3D audio to help people be able to play games. So this isn't the first time we've seen this technology used. We've seen this used for Olympic runners uh, to stay within the confines of a... Uh, of a lane, right? So, so they send out uh, directional auditory signals, so that way, uh, when the runner gets close to the side of the lane, they actually hear the signal. So that way, they you know shift their uh, body to the left a little bit. Um, now, 
uh, Brian in our Slack actually brought up a good point. And he, he wonders if this could be sort of work in addition to, to, uh, the the methods that sighted players use, right? So so could this be used to sort of enhance the way that you interact with the game, right? So so can sighted players use this as well? And uh, one of our uh, one of our other Slack members, Dan, he actually says uh, it could probably improve performance as a situation awareness enhancing tool, um, and uh, goes on to provide his own. Uh, sort of eyewitness testimony on that. No science, but it's okay. We don't need science. We got we got eyewitness. <laughs> it's okay. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think this is really cool. I, I really like these uh, accessibility stories, and it seems like there's kind of been this flood of them over the last couple weeks. And um, it's interesting to see sort of that we're adapting these virtual environments for uh, for handicapped individuals, right? Like, uh, visually impaired, uh, uh, deaf, blind—you know the whole the whole spectrum—and uh, we're getting more and more accessibility over time. And it's it's interesting to see these methods applied because um, it's it's a great thing for accessibility. I love it. Yeah, and I think it plays a dual purpose too. I mean, because like Dan and Brian are talking about, and plus we'll talk about, I think, the next story, these additions of where we're really working on the 3D audio aspect and making that so good that it can help players who potentially have never played a video game at all, in this case, blind players, be able to drive, basically drive a car and make really tight turns that are you know, only possible through video game physics, of course. But if that 3D audio is that good, I mean, it's only going to enhance regular video game play or even using kind of like gaming for training because this, this is a totally base um, example. But same thing happened to me when I was like playing Call of Duty, right? I used to never play with a headset. And then when I did, being able to hear just those smaller visual cues Footsteps that I was not used to hearing you. through a TV just totally changed knowing where stuff was in the visual space. Yeah, hearing footsteps behind you is a game changer because then you immediately just turn your body around and you're there. Uh, you know who's sneaking up on you. And it's it's very important for games like that. But think about sort of uh, the application, not just in video games. I'm thinking, I'm thinking more broad, right? Think about how this could help them navigate the physical space when you have sort of these safe lanes, if you will, um, to, to help them know where their confines are and you know if they if they I, I can very easily see these built into like street lights and just having sonic sonic emitters that will um, you know if you're wearing a special device you'd be able to hear it if not then it doesn't bother you but you know it, <clears throat> you have this device like a Google earpod or whatever they're called I don't know but you have one of these and it tells you like oh there's there's a line here I don't want to cross it because that's the street and I can I can very easily see this sort of technology being applied to the physical environment to enhance safety um, for for individuals who are visually impaired yeah, definitely. Because I we talked last week about I can't remember the name of the app, but it was basically an app that was doing that for you and just communicating where you were in a visual space and giving you directions to go. And I think if you're using headphones, it again gives you just that little little bit more of a tighter immersion into experience this, experiencing the sound in a way that helps people get around, whether it's low vision or blind, 
that could really change the game without as without as much extra technology being put out there. So I think there's just a, a wide range of things that can be done with just sound design in general. And we're, we see it. We've seen it now in video games and in, you know, apps that actually help people get around. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't we jump into the next story? All right, let's do it. Okay. So researchers investigated the spread of a of all verified and true. Oh, sorry about that. So researchers investigated the spread of all the verified true and false stories distributed on Twitter from 20, 2006 to 2017. That is a lot of tweets. So wow. the data was composed of about 126,000 stories tweeted by 3 million people more than 4.5 million times. And they were able to classify news as true or false using information from six independent fact-checking organizations. What they found was that false stories actually diffuse significantly faster, farther, deeper, and more broadly than the truth in the categories of information. And the effects were more pronounced for false political news than for false news about terrorism, natural disasters, science, urban legends, or financial information. Researchers also found that false news was more novel than true news, which suggests that people were more likely to share that novel information. And the, the reason the false news spread so fast is actually not really a problem of AI spreading it or robots, but more so one of a very human nature. So, Nick, this has been a problem that we've talked about for probably pretty heavily for the last year uh, with fake news. And a lot of times I assumed that the things like AI or, you know, APIs just picking up stuff from RSS feeds were really the the culprit here of sharing this stuff so quickly. But it, it appears from the research that uh, came from science is not not showing that as much. Yeah. So this is this is really important for sort of the way that we ingest information online. Don't believe things that you read, even from Human Factors Cast. It could be fake news. Like I said, our researchers are really good, and they try really hard to ensure that they're bringing you good stories that you know are also factual and and true. And a lot of times, uh, like like you said here, uh, or or the uh, the article suggests, it's it's less uh, f- you know false false political news is the big one, but it's less the the lesser. What am I trying to say here? Science is safe, safer. I will say there there are some um, science stories that get spread around that are not that they that are fake news, false news, whatever. I don't know. I don't want to use fake news. That's that's a stupid term. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> getting political here. Um, but yeah, this is this is tremendously important for the way that we take in information. And um, you know, I I don't know about you, Blake, but just anecdotally, since the last election, at least here in the states, I have stopped looking at. Uh, political, uh, politically charged uh, stories online. I I choose not to um, click on them or even indulge in them because I I know a lot of them are clickbait and a lot of them are just trying to get a rise out of people. And misinformation is so important to stop. It is really important to stop because the only way that we can progress as a society is to pass on what we've learned. And when we're passing on falsehoods and we're passing on these, you know, sort of novel stories that happen to be false, 
I guess those are the same thing. I don't care. I'm just, I'm, I'm mad. We don't, we don't want to do it. Right. And it go, no, no, no. This is really important too, because this goes for the same, this goes, the same thing goes for when you publish in, um, articles and journals. Like you don't, don't publish something if you don't, like if you're just trying to make tenure, don't publish it. It's stupid. Don't. I'm getting really worked up, Blake, and I see your face over there, and you're like laughing at me as I'm trying to articulate myself and fumbling over myself, and now I'm just ranting and I'm upset, and I don't want this to happen. Just don't do it. If you don't have anything that's truthful to say, don't say it. All right, go. Well, so that was the problem that I actually revisited when we when I was reading the story. Is like, of course, the the political news being the the bigger culprit it, it somewhat makes sense because there's so many different outlets and I, I just feel like every week we find out that somebody one of the bigger names that shall remain nameless on here puts out something that is less than there's much less than being true or accurate but what i thought about is you and i it might have been a year ago now but at one point we talked about public journals that were publishing online putting out bad science or science that had not been vetted had not gone through the proper process and it that's the that's really where it gets tricky for me nick is how do we because i'm glad they were bringing this up but the bigger thing in my head is what do we do to help ourselves know what avenues we can trust because if we've got major labels even if it's science journals or it's big news outlets and we're having to like one by one vet them on our own. I mean, that just takes up way too much time. I think you have a much better strategy of just not reading the politically charged articles than try and even read them because I, I, I feel like you then, or I would feel like I would then have to really, okay, let me go find and cross check sources or figure out if this is really true. And it just, it takes up so much time and I, I just don't even know any way around avoiding false information i think so a lot of it comes down to intent right so political news that makes sense to me because the other side is always going to try to undermine their opposition and so that makes sense to me and the fact that natural disasters are mostly fact they either happen or you know i guess you can speculate about um global climate change uh, and, and I can see where, you know, some some people may have differing opinions on uh, the truth about climate change. So so there's that. But then you also have um, science. That's that's a little harder. Right. And, and this is that area where I'm like, don't publish if you don't have anything. Uh, if you're just trying to get tenure, if you're just trying to ma- meet a quota, don't publish. I mean, I know it's hard. Right. It's hard. Say, it, it's easy for me to say because I don't have to publish a certain amount to stay, you know, tenured. But I exactly. think exactly your livelihood isn't directly dependent uh, on it, right? Yeah, exactly. But I think it's very important to raise this as an issue in a lot of the educational systems. Is that this is their form of currency? This is how they keep their job, and it's it's publishing out crap science that is then spread around. And, you know, the methods aren't sound, the, 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 uh, analyses aren't sound, like they're, they're going through and doing all this stuff. And, and it's, it, it pisses me off, man. Like I'm, I'm, I'm pissed right now because this is, (laughs) I feel like I'm ranting, but like, this is, you need to stop. You need to stop doing that because you are part of the problem. It's not the people that spread it. It's also the people who, uh, you know, come up with this shit in the first place. 
Yeah, and just to be clear too about the story, this was all based off of only things happening on Twitter. So this this is only localized to to that medium. Um, but still, I mean, it it brings up the larger question of what's going on in different outlets that are not all based on people sharing information. Right. Well, uh, there you go. Science is fake news, I guess. So bummer <laughs> all right well before we move on because i'm just gonna sit here and rant all day if not uh i just want to thank all of our friends over at TechCrunch and gadget um and uh we got a couple other ones here uh science of course uh for all of our stories this week and transportation uh, and microsoft.com and microsoft yes we got a, we got a lot of them this week um, we forgot to update our thing, but we got, we got a lot of them this week. Thank you for all our stories. If you guys want to follow along, you can join us on social media or join us in our Slack for those exclusive articles as well. Okay, Blake, I think I have a feeling that this is going to be your favorite story of the week. Oh, you know it. Actually, oh, yes. I'm really confused. Elon Musk has updated the plan for the boring company, tweeting out a new concept video that cars. So the shuttle is intended to carry people and bikes and Musk said that the boring company's loop network would have of small stations, the size of a single parking space. And additionally, all tunnels and hyperloops will as pedestrians and cyclists over cars. So while cars will still be in the mix, the current promise is that they'll have to wait for a personalized mass transit for personalized mass transit needs, possibly energy hot, hogging automobiles to opt for transportation that benefits everyone all around trying to get people to opt out of cars and in total to make a better transportation experience for everyone this guy is truly out to save the world yeah you know that they're not focusing on cars but tesla is probably going to make these devices that that carry around all these passengers so they're still winning in a sense right so this is this is cool though because this takes the greater need of the community and puts it above the uh individual's need and i love this concept so much because i feel like this this sort of idea um the past but i feel like this sort of idea is what's going to revolutionize the way Public transportation, it's like giving public transportation its own fast lane in front of every opt to be more environmentally conscious are going to get to their destination faster. Um, sure, you have to sit next to the smelly guy on the... You get there faster, so you don't have to sit next to him as long. It's very true. And I, I think this is in with a lot of the models I've seen, it, at least in San Diego, and so that's definitely different from LA, but move away from having the cars if you're having to commute within the city area and really vehicles like just regular cars going around and doing kind of ride sharing. I think this really is trying to mid and uh, economics into how you're going to get people around quickly. Like I'm, I'm super happy that the community is putting, is being put first really want to interact with virtual objects well the simple answer is that we want to be able to hand them as if they're real they're so in a way that requires really no learning so it almost feels real like nick and i talked in the beginning which is at microsoft are actually striving to advance perhaps one of the most challenging areas of research and development of virtual reality and that's to realize and deliver truly immersive and convincing tactile experiences in vr so researchers have been exploring exploring ways of of using existing technology that can generate a wide range of handheld VR controllers, but are also similar and look similar in looking enabling somebody to just to grasp and touch a virtual object that feels as if you're touching something in real life. And so they've got a long list of kind of technologies here that they're implementing in this VR controller space to help with haptics. Um, 
So I, I don't know. I was interested to get your opinion, Nick, like how you think that this this higher fidelity of tactile feedback is really going to impact VR overall. It will impact VR overall. Uh, that's good. <laughs> so, so look, here's the thing. This comes back to what we were talking about earlier, right? The more senses that you pile on to a virtual environment, fine. It it the VR is the closest I've ever felt to being somewhere else, even when, you know, I, I've gone to these haunted houses and, and other experiences, if you will. VR is the closest I've ever gotten. And the more senses you can mask, the more real it feels. Uh, the more immersive it's going to be and the the less uh, you can leave up to your imagination, right? Like I was talking about earlier with that Star Wars VR thing, you actually reach out and touch physical components in the environment, flip switches, push buttons, you can feel the guns in your hands and and it's like, it's this, that that aspect of it made it feel more real than if it was just like holding a controller you know, as, as a blaster or whatever. And then, and then touching something on the wall, but getting no feedback. So I, I see all of these interaction um, methods as uh, something that's going to be very beneficial to the world of VR. I feel like a lot of these technologies are definitely on the right track. Although some of them look more cumbersome than others, but the concept behind them is really cool, right? There's, there's a picture figure four. If you're following along with the article, uh, this is haptic links. And this to me, the bow and arrow one is like super exciting because apparently, you know, it, it, you can see it would probably apply tension. So that way it feels like you're actually shooting a bow and arrow. Um, there's the drill, Right. So it it would give you the right amount of feedback to make you feel like you're actually drilling something um, as well as some musical instruments is there. It's, it's just very exciting to me to see all of these sort of technologies um, be hopefully implemented someday on um, in virtual environments. And I mean, we've seen. Uh, you know, we've seen the cane troller. We talked about that last week, but but all these other ones. Um, are are very exciting. Yeah, I think the the biggest impact these are going to have are for making the fidelity of when you're using VR and something outside of just video games that needs to have more more feedback given to the user. Or like if it's if it's training for let's say like a cert or surgery for a surgeon, right? So it, that it's actually giving them a lot of a lot more realistic feedback, even though it may not like Nick and I were talking about be that full mind diversion. Uh, Ver mind immersion. This will still allow them to really okay. I've I've got a I've got really to pay attention to what I'm doing here because it's what that little move that I made could have caused a nick type of thing. Just just things that allow them to have a little higher fidelity, uh, similar to what you would see in like a real surgery. So I think that's the the biggest impact these will have. But I, I agree with you, Nick. A lot of these seem so much more cumbersome. Um, than what you would typically have. So I think that's still a hurdle to, to get over at some point, but moving in the right direction nonetheless. Yeah, I um, I always come back to that, the like haptic glove where, you know, it, it would basically, it, it acts kind of like a exoskeleton where it would stop you from actually um, touching the thing. So you get like external feedback, but it's, I don't, that's tricky because then you don't get the internal pressure other than pushing on the, 
inside of the exoskeleton that is stopping you from touching that thing. Um, now you need like a full body exosuit basically to sort of mask all of your uh, interactions, right? If you were to kick an object, like if you were to kick a wall, the exoskeleton would stop you from doing it, right? Can you imagine that? You, you can. I, I see you thinking over there. I don't know, man. Like, I have no idea what full body immersion would even feel like, because uh, the visual, the visual aspect of it is is pretty intense to me. But if there if there's so much haptic feedback, I'm I'm not sure how my body would adapt to it or what it would feel like. Yeah, it it it. Yeah, I. I feel like my senses would be extremely overwhelmed because what we were talking about earlier i know that it's a it's a experience it's not necessarily real life so i, I don't know It'd be interesting to really jump into something like this that's that intense i know you you turn into david after dentist i'm not <laughs> sure what that is is this real life you got you, me man you haven't you haven't seen that youtube video i have not oh my gosh is this real life it's the it's the little kid after he goes to the dentist and he's like drugged up with novocaine he's like completely oh god is that what it feels like to go through a serious amount of haptics in vr oh you said is this real life and that's what the kid says anyway we've we've gone down this rabbit hole um well you know what man i i think uh we got time for some some reddit stuff let's do it it came from it came from it came from Reddit. So this is uh, the It Came From Reddit section. This is the part of the show where we search all over Reddit to bring you guys topics that the community is talking about. So any subreddit's fair game as long as it relates to the field of human factors and encourages discussion amongst you guys, the community. All right, Blake, we got time for one of them today. What do we want to do? One? So one is more human factors related, and I think it's an important question to kind of jump into. But it's I'm leaving it up to you, man. Oh, that's a long one. Oh boy. Okay. You know what? Let's do it. We we got like seven minutes. Let's break this thing down. Okay. All right. Okay. So the question is, how would you suggest I begin bringing more UX research into my early stage startup? This is posted on the user experience subreddit by uh, PissNotNP. PissNotNP. All right. I'm going with that. That's what we're going with. All right. PissNotNP goes on to write, hi, I'm working at a company that is making a social gaming platform for mobile. Essentially, users can play games with each other over video chat. Right now, it's a couple of developers and a graphic designer. We just put a pretty basic MVP out right into the market and threw a bit of marketing at it, and it's going pretty well. We, uh, we for sure, have a section of users that love using it and use it pretty frequently. Now, I'm well aware of the benefits of doing user research. I've been part of companies that have failed for, I believe, ignoring users. We have done a few user interviews ourselves, but I'm having trouble understanding the best way to approach demoing our product. Maybe what I can do is throw some questions at you guys, uh, that's us, Human Factors Cast, that I am having, and you can answer them all slash some slash none. Any help is appreciated, though. All right, so they have three questions here, Blake. I'm going to read them one by one, and I think maybe we just tackle, I'll read one, we tackle it, we read another, we tackle it. Let's do it. Okay. So number one, I would say our aha moment is our is a video is a user video chatting in a room with their friend. If we are doing user research and bring a user in, what's the best way to go about getting them to experience that? Set it up so they chat with one of their one of our colleagues. Blake, I okay, so so again, let's recap here. So we have this gaming app 
where uh, sort of you interact with other people while you're playing games. I'm guessing. Yeah, it sounds like you can just chat while you play a game. Right. So so it's like what we're doing. Instead of podcasting, we're playing a game. Basically, yeah. So okay, I'll I'll jump into this one. So hmm, if if you're if you're real, I'm I'm still confused about what's bringing people in and if they're having a problem um, understanding if this specific experience has got problems in it or not. Because they they described above that they said it's going really well, and I would ask to figure out like what makes you think it's going really well. But anyway, so if they really want to get at how well that things are things are going with the interaction between people within their chat. I would say the best way you can do that is probably not use a colleague because that's going to, that's going to introduce some, some strange bias, especially since you're a small team. People are intimate, intimately agree um, involved in the product and the product. Um, I would just, I would bring randomized users in that fit your demographic or fit the, the, user needs or the user profile that you have. But what I would really focus on is trying to develop scenarios in which they would interact with each other. So maybe talking to them and giving them like a baseline, like, hey, you're going to use our app and it's uh, this is the, the goals. This is the point of the app. This is how you interact. And then just give them maybe a series of things to do, whether it's like hop in a game together and you know, go back and forth and see how, see how the chat goes. Like maybe give them an introductory to get to know each other. So it's not as strange, Um, but that's, that's kind of the best way I would know to go about that one. What do you think, Nick? Yeah. So I, I echo your statements there, Blake. I I say, put them in another situation with another user because then you double up on data, but also um, there's no sort of artificial bias like Blake was saying with someone from your team. So what you could do is set one of them in one room, put another one in another room. And like Blake said, you know, give them some time to kind of get to know each other. And, and um, this is really important and kind of bleeding into your second question, which I will answer in just a second, but um, get someone who understands what a task based goal is. So that way uh, they can, create this task in a game to where these people have to work together to do it and and finding one of those so that way um they both have this common goal that they are both working towards and they have to use your app because they are in two separate rooms to communicate to get this objective done i think that's a really good way to identify a lot of gaps in your product um, but also to see what's working effectively and and maybe what's working okay um, I'm going to jump into question number two here because I got some follow-up to that, what I just said. So number two here, they say, being such a small team, it's hard for us developers that are used to developing to take a step back for a few days or so to do our user research. Do you think it's worth bringing someone on part-time or full-time to manage the user research UX stuff? The graphic is fairly different from our user from our current team. How valuable is having someone relatable to do user interviews? Well, I would say definitely hire someone. Uh, this is obviously hugely biased because we are user researchers ourselves, but hire someone because they understand that that is their full-time job and you will come up with so much more insights if you can do it in a way that you are sure there's no um, external variables affecting sort of the the product. You you know you're in a controlled environment and... and um, um, you know, putting putting in one of your guys that would introduce bias. So search side of things because they will come up with a million and one different ways to measure your system and will provide you if they're good, they will provide you a million different. Me- 
I totally agree with. I wish this like guy had or guy or girl had a like a regular name because I would I would love to know what company this is because this is great that they're they're thinking this far and being that open about the fact that hey we're developers and we just don't really have time or we're not even sure how to take days off to just do user research and so I would echo what Nick said is the beauty of that is like Nick was talking about they're going to help you figure out kind of a task-based ideas of what you should be measuring what you can build into your software that lets you kind of keep running launch and update uh, so really and then the last thing I do want to add here is you you bring up a great question is it valuable having somebody that's relatable to do user interviews and I feel like that's to people I mean they don't have to be a, an actor or anything like that that makes it feel fake but you want uh, point number or question number three since our app is a video chat platform i was thinking i could reach out to existing users with a push notification offering a gift card or something to chat with me for 15 or so is this a reasonable way to go about finding existing users to talk to so this one first um i don't think it's a bad idea you know, the bandwidth to offer people some kind of incentive uh to do it but to be very, if you're doing this and they're they're existing users, this is much more of kind of doing a user needs analysis of this really quickly. Um, it's it's getting an idea of okay, I would stress that this is uh, kind of a precursor to doing more more explicit research. You to take that user researcher that you have hired and have them kind of develop. We would highly advise against sending a push notification. That may actually irritates me more than my, when my workflow is interrupted uh, in an app and says, would you like to rate having some sort of opt-in option where you have, uh, you know, like a submit feedback button and um, you submit your feedback and, and then, you know, ask them the question, would you like, or uh, uh, would you be willing to take, part in a user participation survey or something along those lines have them opt into it because then um you're not you're not upsetting anyone and you still get direct contact with your users i think i think that's at least my two cents i like it smart choice okay well blake that brings us to the end of the show it's time to say goodbye We'll be back next week. That's it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the stories this week. Did you like them? Did you hate them? Let us know. If you guys have any suggestions for topics or news stories that you think we may have missed, you can follow us all over social media or join us on our Slack. Head on over to like I did today. You can leave us a voicemail at 901-646-1432. That's 901. Sure to like, subscribe, review us on Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, or whatever your favorite podcast directory is. Due to the time change, where can our listeners find you if they want to talk about how to ponder? I love doing this every week with you. Me too. As for me, you can find me uh, on LinkedIn or Twitter at... Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations. And all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense. <laughs>